Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. This week on District 34, I'm going to walk you through some of the highlights of last week's DNC Summer Session meeting in San Francisco. On Wednesday night, the Progressive Caucus of the California Democratic Party, in sponsorship with Our Revolution, Progressive Democrats of America, and Roots Action, held a climate change strategy meeting. Welcome, everyone. First things first, can you hear me in the back? Yes. Hello. My name is Amr Sherry, I'm chair of the Progressive Caucus of the California Democratic Party. You're coming out tonight, the night before the DSC starts. You are a troublemaker, so congratulations to So this is a strategy meeting, and it's a relatively sophisticated crowd. So um, that's why you're here. I know you're here for a reason, so I'm not going to spend time at least I'm not going to telling you about the Amazon being on fire or what carbon release is on the Arctic. I'm not going to talk about your record-breaking temperatures every July, every month throughout the world. Um, our primary purpose here today is to bring pressure on the DNC to hold a climate debate, a presidential climate debate, that thus far they do not have an interest in holding. Now, we have two resolutions that we're looking at passing. Um, if you saw the handouts when we came in, resolution number five, resolution number seven. Um, resolution number seven to create a climate crisis council, that is Dietrich. Um, I think that creates an opportunity for us so we don't have to come together ad hoc every time like this when we need to put climate on uh, the upper echelon, right, the front page of the issues that the DNC wants to address. Um, second is, uh, by Ms. Podolsky is resolution number five for a climate debate. And when it comes to the climate debate, I want to thank, first of all, our DNC members who are out here up front. Thank you. Know, really, 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 Panelists included Annie Leonard, who is the executive director of Greenpeace and also the author of The Story of Stuff. Um, I do not need to tell this room how serious the climate crisis is. As you know, scientists no longer debate whether or not climate is real, but whether the impacts are going to be catastrophic or existential. Those are the two choices that we're down to now. This is the biggest challenge that humanity has ever faced. And I don't need to tell this room either that the window that we have to change course is shrinking. Um, as the oceans warm and as the Arctic ice melts and as the water cycles change, feedback loops become too entrenched and too fast and too severe to be changed, and we will be locked into a pattern towards that existential threat. The window that we have is right now. We often hear that this is the first generation, we are the first generation to live with the impacts of climate change, and the last generation with a window to change it, but I think that's actually misleading because we don't have a generation. We have a few years. We have an actual hard deadline. Last year, the IPCC, the most respected, most expert body of climate scientists in the world, said we have just over a decade to cut fossil fuels in about half. And then we have to keep reducing after that. Even if we were able to do that, it will be too late to prevent all harm. But if we quickly and ambitiously embrace this goal, if we embrace it with gusto, we do still have a chance to avoid the worst climate impacts, the most brutal impacts. 
Cutting fossil fuels in half is a gigantic task. It is going to take an all-hands-on-deck effort to meet this. Um, it is a huge, huge to-do list that we have, and we have to start now. We can't continue business as usual for nine years, and then in the tenth year, it's radically drastically change things. Every day that we delay, the job becomes hard. It is already very, very hard, but it is not impossible. Even the IPCC said that while it is techni it's technically possible, it, politically there are still obstacles, and the DNC has the opportunity to change that right now. In this incredibly high-stakes moment, developing, sharing, debating climate plans has got to be a top priority for all of the presidential candidates, and the DNC should be doing everything it can to be facilitating that. That is what leadership looks like. We voters are about to vote for who is going to lead this country for the next presidential term four years, which is not hyperbole to say will determine the future of our country, our environment, our economy, and millions and millions of lives. This is our last make it or break it window to pivot that trajectory away from the climate cliff and towards real just solutions. And that is why we need a full on debate focused on climate. If we're going to avert this climate catastrophe, we, the people, we, the voters, need to know where those vying to be our leaders stand on this incredibly pressing issue. The scant time given to climate on the, on the conventional debates is not enough to get into the nuance between the climate positions, it's a candidate's position. It's not even enough to get past the superficial slogans. We need to hear solutions, not sound bites. As well as Michelle Dietrich, who is a DNC member from Michigan and author of Resolution 7. Good evening, sisters and brothers. I am so glad to be here, and I'm so heartened by your presence. I'm Michelle Regalado Dietrich, um, and as you said, I'm a DNC member from Michigan, where I live on an 80 acre farm, and I see the effects of climate change every season. We have half our farm we couldn't plant this year because it was flooded. And I know this is happening to other people who depend upon their farms for their entire livelihood. It's affecting literally the food that we eat. I'd like to thank our host tonight, the Progressive Caucus of the California Democratic Party, as well as the wonderful co-sponsors, uh, Progressive Democrats of America, Rich Action, and um, personally, as a leader of some of the environmental work that our revolution um, does in Michigan, I'm especially proud of our revolution's um, sponsorship of this event and leadership in the work to pass uh, these resolutions. And I just, again, want to call out um, Larry Cohen, who's uh, another Resolution 7 would establish the Environmental and Climate Crisis Council on the DNC. I know you all have lots of keep going, and I will be thinking of that tomorrow because I'm hoping for wins, but no matter what, we keep going. So the climate debate is absolutely crucial, and I'm so grateful to Tina for her leadership and everyone else doing so much. Um, and having put together a resolution to create an environmental and climate crisis council, I have some idea of the work involved, which is like the iceberg, a lot more than it shows. But we need more. We need to address the structural issues, the reasons we are having to fight for a climate debate. We need going forward to ensure that the National Democratic Party um, and the DNC give the climate crisis the heightened priority that it needs every day, every minute. Um, the great African environmentalist, activist, 
Over 50 DNC members ultimately signed on as co-sponsors. We also had Tina Podlodowski. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for our incredible hosts and sponsors, for my fellow panelists, for the Progressive Caucus, the California Democratic Party, especially you guys, Brock. Thank you so much. Look, um, I'm Tina Podlodowski, chair of the Washington State Democratic Party, and for me, this resolution is really, really simple. And if you've read it, it's really, really simple. Um, but it deals with a very harsh reality, which is we need a climate debate. And if we can't get them to give us a climate debate, they need to lift any penalties on the presidential candidates and we'll hold our own darn climate debate. To make sure that these issues are well, well, well discussed with our electorate. Look, it's simple, but it's also really pragmatic. And I'm gonna speak as a state party chair who wants to win elections, who wants to beat Donald Trump, who wants to train and mobilize a whole new generation of electoral activists, not just for 2020, but for every election year to come. If you take a look at the number one issue, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat, a Republican, or an Independent, the number one issue for voters between the ages of 18 to 35, it is climate. We do ourselves a disservice as the Democratic Party to not talk about it and not talk about the intersectional issues of climate. It is not a one-issue debate in any way, shape, or form. Climate is about the economy. Climate is about addressing jobs. And frankly, if we want to win back those rank-and-file union members whose current livelihood depend on the fossil fuel industry, we better show them what the transition looks like, and we better include them and treat them with <laughs> If you're serious about talking about racial equity and racial equality, well, you've heard all the health disparity issues that this uh, is, a, is a part of. We need to make sure that we are walking the talk when it comes to inclusion in this country and making sure every single child, no matter who they are, has an opportunity to thrive. That's so incredibly important. We also need to look at this from a national security issue. I mean, it makes me laugh when Trump's own national security advisor is saying that climate is the number one issue facing us as a country, not Greenland and any threats that I get from Greenland or Denmark, um, but, but climate. For heaven's sakes, we have to be listening. But finally, finally, this is about us. It's about survival. It's about survival of our planet. It's about survival of us as a species. And it's about making the choice as to what kind of areas we want to live in, what kind of planet we want to live on, what kind of responsible action we want to take as Democrats to make sure that our planet is safe now and for many, many generations to come. Resolution 5 would allow a democratic presidential debate on climate change. I think that people are hungry to hear Democrats talk about their ideas, their plans, their projects, the things that differentiate us from Republicans in this process. They don't want one-minute soundbites. They don't want people arguing with each other. They want to hear how we are going to impact their lives on a daily basis. And I believe as Democrats we can do that. I believe that we can set the future to do this work to make sure that we're talking to everyone. Again, it's not a single issue debate. Um, environmental justice and climate justice, um, we have to be focusing on 
these issues in 2020. Each and every one of our candidates deserves the opportunity to talk about their plans and their issues. But collectively, collectively, look at the group of candidates that we have at the presidential level. We have some great and smart people. You, you know, if you're not going to be president, maybe you're a VP, maybe you're Secretary of Energy, maybe you're something like that. Why can't we, as Democrats, put together a terrific team of rivals that looks at this issue and says, this is the generation that's going to solve it. We have to solve it for all the generations. sitting there in a chair for 10 minutes talking to some talking head uh, from, you know, some news agency. We need people being able and willing to debate. The one thing we know we won't debate is the science, right? Because we're all there in making that happen. But the ways to get to those issues, the ways to solve this, the way that collectively we can say, this is our moonshot, right? This is the work that we're doing as a party, I think is so incredible. So, I've been accused of writing Resolution 5 to show for my governor, Jay Inslee, who's used climate as his number one issue. Well, number one, that's not true. Number two, my governor suspended his presidential campaign today, uh, this evening, on Rachel Haddam. So, let's just sweep that excuse aside, DNC. Um, he's not there as a, as a candidate. So let's make sure that we make this happen and that we do the work around this. And we also heard from Alan Minsky, who is the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. All I want to say is that, first of all, if people have not signed on to our revolutions petition, it's very easy to find. You simply Google our revolution and uh, climate debate, and it will be the first link. And it's a fantastic petition. And I just want to say that the texture of our petition is grounded in the Democratic Party platform, uh, which is supposedly the document that defines the Democratic Party in the United States. And in it, it does say that it recognizes we're in a climate emergency, and it calls for, and this is the product of the people who are on the platform committee, who were uh, Bernie Sanders uh, environmental advisors, uh, one of them is strategic advisor on environment, Russell Green, Bill McKibben was there, there were other environmental activists from the Sanders campaign, and they pushed through language, and you can look at it, it's again, the, supposedly the ruling document of the Democratic Party that we need to have a World War II scale mobilization. Bright and early Thursday morning, I attended the Resolutions Committee hearing, and although the committee heard over 50 resolutions, it was the climate change resolutions that erupted into controversy. So under the under ten issue separate issue discussion, you would have let's I'm just making it up, 10, 45 minutes separate discussion where you would have in-depth discussion with single candidates. So ten let's make it ten times forty-five minute discussion with separate candidates, right? Under your proposal, are you suggesting one debate with ten candidates? Not debate. 10, dis 10, 10, one, one debate, one discussion with 10 candidates. One, so, so it would be one 45 minute or one two hour discussion, one hour with these candidates. So you would actually limit the overall discussion of climate change, but it would be with all of them together? I think if I understand what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
that you're saying that one so the sunrise movement's outside and the DNC's not letting them in the room. open to the public. That's what's going on. Thank you. 
the media from continuing. I'm going to go back to what we were discussing. What Jim is, what Jim is, um, I'm going to have to ask you to be removed if you are trying to stop the meeting. Are you a member of the committee, of the resolutions committee, of the resolutions committee? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we can't have this. Mr. Chair, I apologize for speaking out of order, but it's to my knowledge that the staff has been told to let folks in. And so if everyone will just... at the front of the room. So we are letting people in. We're going to do so in an orderly manner. I know the chair, the chairwoman would like to get back to the meeting. And we are pressing matters. So please, ladies and gentlemen, we are letting folks in, okay? Thank you. I know. That's none of the rules. The rules of the room. So what Jim's language would do, Charlie, is you would have that if there is a discussion. So um, the resolutions committee was set to be at 8 a.m. Um, right. They expected um, activists not to know how to get up early, apparently. <laughs> so <laughs> we we got there early. I got here about like 7.25. Um, I was given a guest pass. I signed up with... Um, with the DNC the day before, so they knew that I was gonna be here. Um, so I went into the room that we were going to have the committee meeting in, and um, it was very, very empty. There was over half the chairs were empty. Um, there were a couple Sunrise people who were there, and I start getting texts from my people saying, we can't get in. They say that there's no more room, they're at capacity. So I thought that was bullshit, and like, obviously an attempt to wish democracy and to keep activists from seeing the process, um, which we knew was going to be, um, we knew it was going to be difficult to get the resolutions passed that we wanted to get passed. So I went all the way back out to the table that I had gotten my badge. Um, there were about like hundred or 150 activists who were there angry. And this is like 735 at right. this point. So well before the meeting is going to start. They said they didn't have enough um, passes. Mm -hmm. They, you know, more people came than they were expecting. So we start shouting. We start saying things like, you know, we're all registered. We all, we already got registered. Um, and then right. they pulled out some, you know, head, head of something to try to pacify us. And she was like, we just don't have enough space and so I start shouting, like, I've just been in the room. There's plenty of chairs. Right. You know, hundreds of people can fit in there. What you're doing is undemocratic. This meeting should be open to the public. And so um, it became clear they were not going to give us the passes. So then um, we looked around and I said, okay, guys, well, they can't stop us all. Let's go. 
So we start marching down um, these hallways. We came around this corner. Um, I was uh, leading the way because I had been to the room before. So when we got to the doors to go in, there are, you know, maybe like four or five double doors mm -hmm. and they had blocked them all off. Right. So I start talking to the um, people that were inside, like the security people. And um, they wouldn't let us in. They wouldn't let us in. The whole group came behind us and there was a struggle. Um, I was let in because of my badge and immediately I flew, you know, flung the doors, open. The doors yeah. open. I got that on camera. Good, good, <laughs> good. Well, because we could hear you guys outside and you're right, the room had a lot of space in it. There was no way that was to capacity, not even remotely. No. And so I kept hearing and I kept thinking they must be outside trying to get in. So I had walked down to the back of the room mm. and got there just in time. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We looked up on Hilton's um, website because we're at the Hilton Hotel. Yeah. This room, the capacity for that room was 2,200. <laughs> and we counted them up. They had put out 208 chairs. Right. That sounds about right. Tenth. A tenth of capacity. Mm -hmm. And the chairs were not yet full by the time no, that all the activists um, came in. So there was a physical struggle at the door. That's right. Um, one man in particular was trying to like push me out of the way. I was holding doors open. I was um, ushering people in. Uh, we got nearly all of them in. Um, and, but they still continued to put the brakes on people coming in because of no credentials. I had a couple of other friends who came to the, to the door who didn't know what had happened and um, uh, they were turned away. So there were people who, who wanted, who showed up and who paid parking and got up extra early on Thursday morning. It was crazy. So then, um, as the meeting started, uh, some door, you know, as the doors were opening and closed, we started hearing people saying, let us in, let us in. Yeah. So, um, I went to the back of the room, pushed open the door and there was another physical fight. Um, this is interrupting the meeting, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but before we consider that, we need to understand that this controversy has been months in the making. It started last June when environmental activists started a petition to get the DNC to sponsor a climate change debate. We have a climate crisis denier at the White House. We have a Senate Majority Leader who has blatantly taken on the moniker of the Grim Reaper for anything passed by the U.S. House. But we can pressure them by putting through a massive jobs bill that will address the climate crisis. There's lots of work to be done. We don't need a Green New Deal resolution. We need a Green New Deal. And we need a While we wait to vote President Trump and the Grim Reaper out of office next year, we can act at the state level. And that's the gist of the last part of the, the resolved clauses in this uh, resolution. We have a trifecta in 14 states. That's up from six states just two years ago, where we have both houses of the legislature and the governorship. We can enact the Green New Deal in those 14 states right now. There are 24 additional states with some form of initiative process where we can put this on the ballot through getting petitions signed. 
Seven of those states overlap with both the trifecta and a initiative, but that gives us 31 states where we can start making a huge difference right now. And if people see what a Green New Deal looks like, in reality, that it creates millions of jobs, these can be good paying union jobs, yeah. and they are so People see us step up, not after the 2020 election, but right now in these states. Yeah. change their perception of our party, and we will not only have a blue wave or even a blue tsunami next year, we will have a transformative election where independent voters and disaffected Republican voters join our party and put us in power to do the right thing for decades to come. So the idea was, is if we could change the rules, it would not penalize any presidential candidate for participating in a debate on climate change. Currently, they can go into a forum setting, but that only allows for one candidate on the stage at a time. So it's not really conducive to understanding the differences in the candidate positions. I, 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 I was asked to um, let people know what the DNC has been saying throughout debates and uh, read what has been uh, given to campaigns, networks, groups, and media, and whoever else. DNC sanctioned debates. The DNC will hold 12 sanctioned debates, the largest number ever, six in 2019 and six in 2020. Um, as part of this process, the DNC is negotiating the best possible platform for Democratic candidates so that each debate is a large reach. Then the question is, how do you distinguish between a debate and forum? An event is considered a debate if two or more Democratic presidential candidates appear simultaneously on the stage and answer questions. An event is considered a forum if only one Democratic presidential candidate appears on stage at a time to answer questions. Jim, please. What do you mean by saying, um, with the candidates appearing on the same stage. I'm saying, Stuart, that there's no mandate. We are encouraging multi-party or multi-candidate discussions on specific issues um, as the best venue for in-depth conversation. That is not a mandate. That is not imposing a requirement on candidates or on the party. It is simply stating that what our preference is, what, what we're encouraging, is a multi-candidate discussion of these critical issues. I, 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 I have to say that I, you know, the, the, the interpretation creates a much different, much more onerous, and I, I think negative uh, interpretation of what this resolution is. This is an encouragement, like many of our resolutions are, and therefore I, um, I, I simply, um, um, I, I simply urge passage of a multi-party, a multi-candidate discussion. Uh, you no know other resolve that needs to be changed because the resolves actually speak to the same. Whereas, so I, I would encourage a, a, uh, what we're asking for here, what I'm asking for here, is anything other than a conversation, a conversation where candidates civilly engage in discussion with one another on a critical issue, pointing out differences, pointing out common areas of agreement, and coming to an understanding. It is very different than, um, Senator, 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 uh, you have, you've gone over the time, Senator,
and then shutting them down or shutting her down to the next one. That is a very different and I think less um, helpful format for coming to an understanding of where candidates are and what the best path for the nation is. So a multi-candidate discussion I think would be edifying, yeah. I think it would be helpful, yeah. I think it would be uh, uh, encouraging voters to see the seriousness with, with which our candidates approach critical issues. And that is not something we've had an opportunity to see in the debate structure today. Throughout the morning, Dr. Jim Zogby continued to be a strong advocate for the environmentalists. Would not want to leave here with a sense that we either wasted time or exhausted too much time as it was that we exercised real democracies. Thank you, Dan. That's not what I'm saying. I, I know, that's not, I, I, no, I, I understand. So I, uh, I when I took over as chair of the resolutions committee, uh, we were an hour, and uh, it was boom, 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 boom. And I opposed that, and so we got an hour and a half uh, because I wanted people to talk. I felt that people who wrote resolutions who came to meetings ought to have a chance to participate. This was a truly, um, exciting and open discussion on some critical issues. And while some folks left because they lost, um, I don't think they should feel that they lost. I think that they should feel that they actually engaged in really important debate. Um, and we are going to be stronger for the debate. So I hope that in whatever changes or provisions you come up with, um, it, it in no way inhibits the opportunity of DNC members to write resolutions and submit them, um, and for uh, those of us who are on the committee, if we are on the committee by next time, to engage in that discussion, and for our constituents to also participate. I... During the debate, several of the resolutions committee members presented arguments that were rather weak. Democratic delegation, a state that in the last 20 years has lost uh, <coughs> tens of you know, lost a majority of our, our democratic legislators uh, where, where we took care of our rural communities. And while I certainly agree that the discussion of climate change is important and the passion that's in this room is important and we need to continue to listen to it, I vote my opposition to this resolution is not because I disagree with you on the importance of the issue. It's because in communities like mine, where many of you have not been to, the people that I am trying to bring on board within the Democratic Party and to support our democratic values have similar priorities, they just don't know it. As an agriculture state, as an energy exporting state, uh, we depend on these good jobs and we are transitioning to renewable energies and are trying to do what we can as a super minority party. Uh, I appreciate that many of you come from places where you can be surrounded by people who share these values. Uh, many of us are still doing the work in a lot of different communities to bring more people on board with our values. It's a, it's a longer struggle to get there. We will get there. Um, but my opposition to this is not because of my disagreement to the importance of climate change. It's in agreement with much of what's been said about how we prioritize the important different conversations that need to be had. And as someone who represents rural America, 
the middle of the country where many folks you know, think <laughs> mix up states and don't understand what our great quality of life has there. Um, we want to have a discussion about rural America. And, and I think when we get this tit for tat and whatnot, to which priority we're going to discuss solely on in a debate, uh, creates challenges because that creates the winners and losers. And so I think we need to continue moving forward with trying to fix the debate format so it's not one minute snippets, that we can have in depth conversation on a variety of issues. Uh, a debate format that isn't dictated by corporations and the media who is determining how much ad space they can sell, but more so about how do we engage an audience of people both within our ecosystem and those outside. And so, again, my opposition is not against the passion or the desire to have a uh, discussion on climate change. It's that this can't be the only discussion we have. And we prioritize the limited amount of time our candidates have. Simone Sanders who is the chairman of Joe Biden's campaign, was one of the biggest naysayers. There were a number of forums hosted, Planned Parenthood hosted a forum where 20 candidates showed up. Uh, there was a forum specifically about black women. Um, a number of candidates showed up. Uh, there is a forum that Latino Victory Fund is hosting in the, in the coming weeks and months, I believe, uh, where a number of candidates are slated to show up with the slam of Puerto Rico. Um, so I, I just, I, I, we are fundamentally, this, this resolution right now, would fundamentally change the game in terms of uh, what has previously been communicated to not only campaigns, but networks, but other, as I like to call them, factions of the Democratic Party. And I fundamentally believe that climate change is an existential threat, um, just as much of a threat, if not more of a threat than Donald Trump. Uh, but I do think we have to think about the other folks that, that communicated they wanted a debate, that were told a debate is two or more people, and so you may not have a debate, but you can't in fact have a forum. She even described the resolution as dangerous territory. And we support forums, but I just, I think this is dangerous territory in the middle. It was almost as if the Democratic Party wanted us to believe that they couldn't care about multiple issues at the same time. What is the process that got to where we are? But I'm not sure answering the fact that there wasn't a clear process then, the answer to that is coming up with a system that doesn't have a clear process now. Which gets me back to the question, when those gun control people come to me, or the healthcare people come to me, or the people who care about women's issues, or the care, people who care about civil rights, or voting rights, when they come to me and say, they got a debate, what do we have to do to get a debate? What, what's the process? What do you tell them? How many of these things are we gonna have? Is that whoever can fill up this room full of people gets to have one, and whoever can't fill up the room doesn't get to have one? I mean, I, I just think we're picking something out of, of the air. We need to have a process in place to do this so everybody gets treated fairly. And I, I understand there's some people that aren't for fairness here, but I am. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. And Are you a lobbyist? By doing this, we've given everybody an equal opportunity here. But in effect, what we've done is that those people who looked at the DNC decision and honored it, well, that was your mistake. Because the people who tried to overturn the decision got what they want, and because you honored it, you didn't get what you want. And I don't want to send that message either. So, Jim or Christine, can you tell me? What do we say walking out of this room to all those 30 other groups that are going to ask for one of these?
After the resolution was shot down, kids from the Sunrise Movement who had forced their way into the back of the room now stood on chairs and chanted, whose side are you on? They absolutely shut down the DNC meeting. Tina accepted it. We are voting not to full resolution. The full resolution as amended, you vote yes. If you're opposed, you vote no. All those in favor of the full resolution as amended, please say aye. Opposed, no. The vote was 8-4, 17 against. Thank you. Resolution number six, which is also about the resolution calling on the DNC to hold a-
Tommy Alexander, who is one of the young activists with the Sunrise Movement. He had this to say. Spokesman. Uh, you want to tell me about Shetty? You just shut down the DNC meeting. I think really the one person fighting in there for you was Dr. Zogby. How do you feel about how that went just now? I think you kind of knew going in that it was probably going to be defeated, but you guys put up a good fight and it was amazing to watch that. Thank you. So you're going to take it to the floor for about on Saturday, right? That's our hope. How do you feel about that? I think uh, I can speak for all of us in saying they were disappointed that Resolution 5 didn't pass. Um, we were really hoping that the DNC Resolutions Committee would take strong action to uh, to encode a climate debate into the party policy. So, yeah, I would say we're disappointed that it didn't pass, but we're hopeful. Um, there were several committee members who came out and spoke with us and explicitly uh, showed their support with us and shared their intention to take it to a full floor vote on Saturday. So our hope is that this isn't over. There are people that care. We're all on the same page. And I hope we can come together around the climate debate. And specifically, I was a little bit uh, surprised to hear some of these folks bringing up multiple other issues as if we can't care about climate change and these other issues. It's as if caring about these other issues means they can't act on climate change. And I think that's a very disingenuous argument. They were bringing up Trump. They were bringing up voters, things like this. How, did you feel that that was rather disingenuous as well? or? I can see where they're coming from. I mean, climate change is an incredibly intersectional issue. It yeah. affects all demographics in America and everywhere else. It affects our infrastructure. Yeah. It affects our health care. It affects gun violence. It's been linked to higher rates of violence, hot weather. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what I'm saying. So, and I agree with you on that. So why would they say these other issues make it impossible for them to have a climate change debate? That's what I wasn't... I wasn't following the logic on that. Well, it seems that they're trying to bring together their constituency and they're trying to really... And if their constituency is, is, is so, because some of these folks are lobbyists, mm -hmm. so that's the big, uh, that's the big cash cow elephant in the middle of the room, right? That's true. <laughs> and it was pretty apparent to me who those folks were. Uh, is there a way to get around the, the big money in the room? As long as the DNC continues to place these people in positions of power, how do you fight that? It's hard, you know, I can only hope that people power will show the DNC Resolutions Committee and the DNC at large how important this is, that a huge portion of their constituency cares about climate change, that 64% of registered Democrats yeah. have stated their support for climate debate. Okay. So, you know, and that's also, it's every, every serious Democratic candidate, has, you know, including Biden and Sanders and Warren, have all stated they would like to have climate debate. So... Except we have Simone in here basically arguing against it today. What do you make of that? And Biden's not coming this week. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Biden is uh, Biden is playing a different game, I think. But yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of members who support the climate debate. I think hopefully there's a way that we can find a common ground. Uh, yeah. Balancing these concerns about other issues, balancing the concerns of process, but elevating this issue. You know, there were so many people who spoke today about climate change as an issue that, in some ways, encompasses all these other things. No, great. No, I, you guys, I, I, I'm with you on this. I think that this should be first and foremost because. Let me tell you right now, if we don't fix the climate, none of these other issues are going to matter. That's true. This is literally the biggest geopolitical problem we face, in my opinion. Absolutely. And I am sick and tired of no movement from the party that's supposed to be fighting for these things. And this isn't the first time I've been in a DNC meeting and seen this happen. 
I've seen it happen repeatedly, actually. Uh, and Dr. Zogby is one of the few folks that really keeps going to the bath. So God bless him. We're lucky to have him. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I'll be there with you guys on Saturday for that floor vote. Uh, what do you think is going to happen? You think it's got a chance, or is this just keep fighting? I think it has a chance. Okay. You know, I'm an optimist. I think uh, I think we made a strong showing today, and we should. Yeah, no, you guys were great. That this matters. So they didn't initially let you in. I was there in the front of the room, and the room was not full. And I these are these meetings are supposed to be open to the public. And when I came in and checked in and got my press badge, they were turning away the public. They were saying we would give it out all. And I was like, that's um, bullshit wonky right there. That's all I'm going to say on that. Um, but I thought it was great that you you folks made such a stink out here that they had no choice but to let you in. And I think also part of that was you do have a bunch of journalists here live streaming. So they, they sort of realized the public perception on that, keeping you guys outside, was really not a good move. Absolutely. And many of us were in there. You know, I... Had you, you, a, oh, you were one of the lucky I was, ones. I got a badge. I was sitting in there. I came here early. Oh, right on. Um, you came here early to get one. Okay. But there are a lot of people who are out here. And, yeah. Uh, there were, I know, several uh, grandmothers who are here with the group 1,000 grandmothers. And they yeah. wanted to go pay a parking ticket, and they, they couldn't get back in. Uh, and there was oh, that's what she had said. That's right. I went to go pay a ticket, and you're not letting me back. That's right. I did hear one of them say that. Yeah. So, you know, I think it was disappointing to see that the DNC, which, you know, this, this should really be a public forum. The Sunrise activists lined the halls leading to the main ballroom. chanted, they sang, and eventually we heard from many spokespeople for campaigns and presidential candidates themselves. The most impassioned speech came from Nina Turner, who was a co-chair of the Bernie Sanders campaign. All right, so Senator Turner is here from the Sanders campaign. Yeah. Wow. Just, I, I just want to thank Sunrise for all that you're doing to stand up when some adults just don't get it. It boggles my mind why the DNC wouldn't pass what you were asking for, but that's okay because there are many of us, not just for me as a representative of Senator Bernie Sanders' campaign, but as, as a member of the DNC, I believe we need to have a climate forum. So we're going to continue to push. We're going to continue to fight like hell and push people where they need to go. Thank you for standing up for the future, the future right now and future generations yet unborn, and the young will lead them. And we're going to kick ass all the way, too, doing, doing the leading, right? So, I don't want you to ever get weary and well doing every great thing that we've ever done in this country. And dare I, dare I say, the world's always come from the grassroots, not from the grass tops. Um, to quote one of my favorite people of history, and I have many, so I'll just try to stick with one or two. But one comes to mind, and that's President Nelson Mandela. And he once said that it always seems impossible until it is done. And we gonna do it. We gonna do this. We gonna do this. So do not get weary, weary and well-doing. Do not get distracted. Continue to push. When history is written, they're gonna write about those who stood up. You see, titles are good, but purpose is better. And we, 
We need, we need more purpose-driven people in this world, not folks who are just caught up with fancy titles, but people who are going to do something when they get in the room. You are purpose-driven. As you all know, Senator Sanders put out a plan, one of the most aggressive Green Deal, Protect Mother Earth plans of any presidential candidate. Thank you so much for supporting that plan. Thank you for being a part of the creation of that plan. So we gonna do this. So we gonna do this. We will not turn around. The last person I want to quote who's been on my soul is Congresswoman Barbara Jordan. She said these words, what the people want is very simple. They want an America as good as it's promised. And not only are you fighting for an America as good as it's promised, you are fighting for a world that is good as it's promised. Because climate chaos does not only affect us here in the United States of America, it affects our brothers and sisters all over the world. So this movement, and young folks and seasoned folks, I want you to know that your mission is so high, you can't get over. And your mission is so low, you can't get under. And your mission is so wide, you can't get around. We're going to continue to stand boldly and push until climate justice is won. Thank you so much. tried to make the case as to why UBI and climate change are related. You all, holy cow, are you beautiful. I love the summer so much. I agree with you all. You, how many of you watched the last debate? Yeah. So if you watched the last debate, you saw me stake out the new third position on climate change. Position number one, we need to fight climate change. Position number two, climate change is a hoax. And Andrew Yang's position number three, which I think you all share, it's worse than you think. This is an existential crisis and we need to get behind real solutions as fast as possible. We need to stop not just doing less of the bad stuff, we need to start doing more of the good stuff. You all are incredible role models and passionate leaders. I think that the DNC needs to listen to you. We need a climate change debate. And I will be thrilled to show up to that debate and make the case for the fact that climate change is the greatest threat facing our society right now. We need to do something about it. And I know, know, I know you see me as the universal basic income god. That's a good thing. That's good too. I want to make a very quick case to you all that these issues are linked. Because right now, you're all here taking your time and energy to try and lead the rest of the country in the right direction. So the question is, why is it so hard? Why is the rest of the country stuck where it is, given that we can all see around us, this July was the hottest month in recorded history. The last four years have been the four warmest years in history. So why is it so hard? And the reason it's so hard is that so many of our fellow Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. They have their heads down. They can't focus on the future. So if you say we need to worry about climate change, what do they say? They say, I can't think about next month. I'm thinking about today. I'm thinking about this week. So if we pass universal basic income and get their heads up and then go to them and say, we need to fight climate change, you think we'll have a better response? Yes. yes. So to me, 
We can get the boot off of people's throats economically, and then we can speed up on climate change because we need to do it for your sake, for my kids' sake, for the country's sake. So thank you all for your passionate leadership. Let's make history together in 2020. And Tim Ryan promised to take up their mantle. With one last thing, we got a hell of a fight on our hands. There are a lot of powerful interests. Of course, it's the fossil fuel industry. Of course, it's the monopolies and the agriculture industry. We're in for a fight. And I'm going to tell you this, there's no savior. There's no savior. There's no superstar. There's you and there's me together. And that's how we've always made change in the United States. I've been saying for the last few months, it's not about left or right. It's about new and better. I don't want to have the same fights, the same discussions, the same rhetoric that we've been having since the Vietnam War. It's time for us to turn the page. we heard from Reverend Barber who made an impassioned speech about the Poor People's Campaign. Here are some of the highlights. Of grassroots organizers who have committed to this building power, changing the moral narrative in our public life, 
and when necessary, engaging in nonviolent direct action and registering people for the movement who will vote. I come representing tens of thousands who are calling for a televised debate in the primary and in the general election on five interlocking injustices and areas of political violence together, systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. We are not just an inspirational campaign with rhetoric to inspire. We have worked with some of the nation's leading economists and think tanks like the Institute for Policy Studies and created a Souls of Poor Folks Audit of America, which all of you will get a copy of via social, via email. And under the direction of Attorney Shala Gupta Barnes, who's here today, we prepared and presented to the House Budget Committee this summer a moral budget with numbers on how we as a nation could shift priorities to meet the demands of the Poor People's Campaign today, and we held for the first time in history a, moral, a Poor People's Moral Justice Congress that brought together over a thousand people from all 50 states and moral leaders who are committed to transformation in this country. In 24 days, we will be in El Paso to launch a nine-month, 22-stop tour that we're calling We Will Do More Tour. M, mobilizing, O, organizing, R, registering, E, educating, educating and registering people for the movement who will vote. This tour will culminate with a mass Poor People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington, D.C., June 20th, 2020, and we hope to see many of you there. Richard Spencer said that the war against immigrants was the first proxy war of white supremacy in America. Nixon's Southern Strategy said, if you focus on who hates who, you could build a coalition of white people in the South, the suburbs, and the Sun Belt that would last 50 years. Well, 2018 was the 50th year, and the nation is finally beginning to see what's been happening all the time. Dr. King said that the bourbon class has always sown division between white, black, and brown people in this country to keep them from forming fusion coalitions that can change the electorate. We need moral political leadership that will challenge the works of racism, that divide and conquer strategies designed to pit people against one another, and the policies that have disparate impact on black and brown people and even white people. Systemic racism is not just against black people, it is an assault on democracy itself. <laughs> racism is not just words.
racism is voter suppression and gerrymandering. Since 2010, at least 23 states have passed racist voter suppression laws, including racist gerrymandering and redistricting laws to make it harder to register, reduce early voting, purge voters from the poll, and require restrictive forms of ID. If you want to talk about racism, let's really talk about racism. Civil Rights Act for 24 hours, and we called him a racist. Mitch McConnell has blocked the restoration of the Voting Rights Act for six years and one month and 29 days, over 2,000 days. If Strom Thurmond was a racist for blocking the Civil Rights Act for 24 hours. Reverend Barber finished his speech, we heard from Kamala Harris. To get the job done of making sure that we are reaching out and touching people, we are listening to them, we are organizing for them, with them, and we are fighting every step of the way. So here's the thing. This is a moment in time that is no doubt an inflection moment. It is requiring us to look in the mirror as a country and ask the question, who are we? And we all know part of the answer to that question is we are better than this. And so this is the moment in time that we must fight for the best of who we are. After Kamala Harris finished her speech and Bernie Sanders was introduced and was taking the stage, Kamala Harris's staffers who had been sitting in the audience erupted in chants. It was very mm, loud. After they left the room, they continued to chant outside in the hall. Eventually, the security came and asked them to leave. We are facing the most important election of our lifetime. It is an election to defeat the most dangerous president in American history, but also to confront unprecedented existential crises that threaten our very survival. The burden that we face and that this party faces is a heavy one, and we cannot afford to fail. And let me be as clear as I can be. In my view, we will only be successful if we are capable of rallying an unprecedented grassroots uprising that sweeps Trump and all that he represents out of office. And this is where we are today. Our healthcare system is designed to make a hundred billion dollars its profits for the healthcare industry, while 87 million are uninsured or underinsured, 30,000 a year die, 500,000 Americans go bankrupt. The time is now to pass a Medicare for all single payer program. 
On Saturday, Tom Perez introduced the Resolutions Committee packet at 8 a.m. to consider 57 resolutions, which included 31 message resolutions and 26 commemorative resolutions. Good morning, everybody. I'm Stuart Applebaum. And in a world that has gone wrong in so many ways, I am proud to be a Democrat. We have to get this right. Members have received copies of the resolutions as they have been reported out. These resolutions cover a wide range of policy positions. Among the resolutions considered were a resolution on gun violence, a resolution supporting the labor community, a resolution reaffirming the Democratic Party's commitment to making climate change a central issue in the 2020 presidential primary. And we also considered resolutions honoring the lives of some pretty amazing Democrats who have passed away. In addition to the resolutions considered by the Resolutions Committee, the Executive Committee adopted a resolution honoring the life of former Louisiana Governor Kathleen Blanco, who passed away last week. This meeting, the Resolutions Committee meeting, had one of the largest numbers of resolutions that were submitted in our time. And the Resolutions Committee tried its best to make certain each and every resolution was put forth to the committee with due diligence by our staff to make certain it represented what the maker of the resolution wanted to say. Despite the high number, our committee deliberated thoughtfully and thoroughly after five and a half we concluded our work with 48 resolutions that were voted to, to be recommended by the committee. We have not recommended adoption of resolutions five. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Okay. Uh, we had a motion and we had a second. The motion to strike resolution four is debatable. So we will have a debate on this motion. And at the end of the debate, uh, we will go to a paper ballot vote because this issue is very important. And we need to make sure that everybody's vote is recorded on a paper ballot so that we are very clear and transparent in our reporting of this issue. I think it is very important that we do that, and we will indeed do that. And before we do that, folks, I want to make sure I want to I want to make sure folks have the proper context as to what the rules are in the debates, because I think it's very important for us to do that. The concept of sanctioned debates started after the 1988 primary. And during the 1988 primary, there were 25 debates. And we heard from candidates. I didn't hear from them because I was still, I think, in graduate school. But uh, the party heard from candidates that that was an unwieldy number of debates. In 2003, candidates were so inundated with requests on debates that they actually turned to the DNC to develop a sanctioned debate schedule. And so there were DNC-sanctioned debates during the 2004 and 2008 cycles, but there was no enforcement mechanism, which we now have in place since 2016. And as a result, in those eras, and for instance, in 2008, the debate schedule ended up having 25 different debates. And candidates, including a senator from Illinois, were among those who said, this is a very large number of debates, and it's very difficult for us to run a campaign. Candidates and campaigns, understandably, have difficulty saying no to requests, because every issue that comes up is a very, very important issue. And so in 2016, the DNC sought to address the problem by adding an enforcement mechanism to the debate process, and so with the sanctioned debates, candidates were told that they would be barred from participating in any of those debates if they participated in a non-sanctioned debate. At that time, he opened the floor up for debate. If you voted yes, that meant you were in agreement that the resolution should be pulled from the packet. And if you voted no, it meant you wanted to include that in the packet. The no votes were a much longer line of speakers. And a elected DNC member from the state of Missouri. And I stand today to ask you to vote uh, to not remove resolution four from the packet because we need to understand that there is intersectionality with climate change. All right? We need to get that people are losing their homes because of climate change, and that causes crime. That causes gun violence. That causes health care. Thank you, Curtis. We're going to tackle this issue, and we need your having resolution four passed, and that includes people as diverse as Aijin Hu, who speaks for domestic workers across this country. People like Randy Weingartner, who is a union member. 
are entity members of the Northern Marianas Islands who are now under incredible, incredible pressure with regard to climate. Our DNC members from Puerto Rico, who, where climate has devastated the work that they're doing, and members from over 25 different states. Climate is not a single issue debate. <laughs> It is about our young people, it is about our union members, it is about green jobs, it is about making sure that health disparities for our black and brown kids are recognized all the way through. It is about making sure that our national security is represented. It is about this little bit of survival on the planet as the Amazon is currently burning today. And We, as a body, never voted on these debate rules. Not a single one of us. That was brought out. The Democratic National Committee have changed the debate rules more than once. Just ask the 13 or 14 candidates who will not be on the stage in September. We, as a Democratic National Committee, do not have to stand here today, today, and decide how we will move this forward uh, in terms of how this could work for a debate or a conversation. What we are asking for is to make sure that there is no penalty if candidates want to sit down and have a conversation about climate. Let's go back to 16. Let's look at our vulnerability. Let's not create and uh, start a battle between our candidates at this stage. Let's not change the rules midstream. Well, Mr. Chair, Casey Hansen, new member from Progressive uh, Oregon uh, with the DNC. I never had my email box blocked so much as it did after a couple months ago about the climate change, the climate crisis. I am by nature an LGBT activist. Our work isn't done there either. Our work's not done on any of these issues. But what we do not address this climate crisis, we're not going to have to worry about the rest of the world. We talked about so much about climate change, I agree. We do have an issue there, but we also have an issue with other things such as rural. And some, so many of our small towns do not even have a hospital, and you have to go 60 miles to have a baby, and there is no broadband, and you cannot call for an emergency. But I honestly feel very strongly that we already have 12 Time. debates. And I support the strike in this election. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Jerry Shepard, uh, Colorado. We can walk and shoot down at the same time. I've walked. Thank you. However, Tom Perez took it upon himself to tell the DNC membership that he would be voting yes. When he announced this, the audience erupted into chants of failure of leadership. Participating in the process. Are we listening? Please no, you're vote not. to keep Resolution 4 as amended. People were deeply disappointed when Resolution 5 went down. Right. Amendment 4 as amended is a reasonable compromise. More than 30 seconds. And the question is whether we're listening. <laughs> Mr. Chair, my name is Pete Vice Chair from Oregon. As a Korean American in a state that's not very racially diverse, my otherness is a source of my struggle, and my struggle is why I went and knocked on doors in rural Oregon last year. I believe that with this issue, we can bring folks from labor, uh, racial minority groups, environmental groups, and communities of faith together 
and have a strong issue unifying as we fight for these other things. Thank you. Yes on this motion would strike the resolution number four from the report. A no on this motion would leave it in. So we have cleared the auditorium, correct? So please pass the ballot. If you do have a proxy, please hold out your proxy so staff can give you a ballot for that proxy as well. A yes on this motion would strike the resolution number four from the report. A no would retain uh, resolution number four in the report. So yes would strike the resolution. Vote no! Vote no! Vote no! Vote no! Vote no! Vote no! change resolution, I spoke with several DNC members. Curtis Wild from Missouri had this to say. In your opinion, and because I, I feel the same way, they kept bringing up these other issues as if there's some sort of idea that we can't care about multiple issues at the same time. Exactly. I don't understand why they thought that's an argument against this. 
especially when uh, climate change is impacting and creating, causing a lot of the other issues that we're seeing. Gun violence um, could be because uh, of immigration issues that were caused from global, global warming or, or famine or climate or uh, wildfires. And, and the fact is, all of these things are important. And everybody knows that. Everybody in the Democratic Party agrees with that or should agree with that. They're extremely important. Um, to the point where I, I would call them an existential threat as well. Right. But if we don't have a planet, none, none of it makes matters. any no. difference. None of it matters. It, if right. the planet's on fire, all the special interest groups in the world, all the, the, the uh, uh, you know, policies that you care about go away. They go away. All of a sudden we're in a water world or we're in a Mad Max dystopian future. Right now is when we need to, if we're going to put our finger on the scale of anything, it is trying to get the debate out there, trying to get change to be made on climate demand, on the climate change. And you're from Kansas, right? I'm from Missouri. Oh, Missouri, yeah. Curtis so, Lyle from Missouri. I'll get a plug in there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, so now, what I also was kind of taken aback by was, I think Christine Pelosi's point during the resolution committee hearing was that we should be doing this about multiple issues, and yeah. why can't we do and that? Why can't we? Why can't but they shut that conversation Listen. down, so now they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. Yeah, and this is the supposedly the uh, supreme governing body of the Democratic Party, right. and we, we can't evolve. Yeah. We can't evolve. We can't evolve ourselves, yeah. our own rules. Our own, why can't we be fluid? Um, when uh, I guarantee you, the, the, uh, the other I think side. Jim Zogby was making that point uh, that morning in the red. Was yeah. he as well? Yeah. Like, we, we are we the DNC. Why can't we We can change them, yeah. right? But who the hell decided it? Who was the DNC who decided it? Nobody here decided it. We never had a discussion at a DNC meeting about how we would decide it. Are we props to be managed or are we the deciding body of the party? So what I don't do you understand think why there's so much pushback just to allow them to talk about yeah, this. Yeah, I don't get it either. Yeah, so where's there that There should going? be no controversy. I don't, I'd like to know. I'm trying to get to the bottom of I it. I mean, perhaps uh, maybe oil companies that buy well, advertisements. a lot of them are lobbyists that are uh, saying no to this. I know that. But I'm also being told, and I think Jim made a really good point of this when I talked to him, is a lot of it's, it's not necessarily only the lobbyists per se, and it may not even be uh, the biggest part of it. It's the fact that there's so many consultants, like with those five, I think he said, consulting groups that are basically taking all the DNC money. Well, to shift gears, and yes, there's definitely um, things, financial reasons going on, you know what I mean? Yeah. But look at something like labor. Uh, I heard the labor question uh, on the other side. Uh, and the fact is, if we're going to tackle climate change on the level and the scale that we need to, yeah. labor is going to have to be a huge part of that because this is going to be a, a generational change um, that, that is going to create millions of good jobs because now that's going to be our pro focus instead right. of never-ending war that's sometimes created from famine or flooding uh, or, or uh, wildfires that are caused by climate change. Right. So it all comes back to climate change in many respects. Oh, and people, more people need to get that and, and at least let uh, the debate happen. Absolutely. At the very, very least, I let the debate happen. Michelle? Yeah. Oh. I bet she wouldn't have a problem talking about yeah. him.
The chair of the new environmental council? Well, once we approve resolution seven, then right now it's provisional. I was elected chair of the Environmental Council for the okay. DNC, which is newly created. I brought authored the resolution, okay. I brought it, but, but it's provisional. So we're going to be voting. Um, we had a meeting before we got approved because after this meeting, everyone's going to leave. There'd be no chance to have our first meeting. And right. I have to say, the DNC enabled us to do that. They arranged the room for us right. and they worked with us. Right. I mean, I think we need praise where praise yeah, no, is due. So, it can be. You know, I have Alan Minsky from PDA here. We know each other a little bit. Yeah. And so, first of all, I agree. This is huge. But there is the risk of, like, what happened in the House with AOC pushing for a committee and it being stacks of people who take oil money and the same thing happened here. How are we going to be able to support you in having that not happen? So, everyone already did. The thing about DNC councils is that they're made up of DNC members and non-DNC members. And uh, we had so many environmentalists there. We elected a great team, and also we structured the bylaws in such a way that we will have a representative from the Native American community, from the African American community, from the Latinx community, um, and they all, uh, to, to become members, to our officers, right. you have to ascribe to the bylaws, which uphold and environment. Uh, Fighting climate change right. and environmental justice. So, and and, and, the, and the, but what does it say anything about the fossil fuel industry? And the other thing is, we ha I put in an ethics uh, provision in the bylaws. Yeah. So if you have a conflict of interest and you're running, you have to reveal it, and before any vote that would involve anything like that. Right. You would have to refrain from the discussion if there's a conflict of interest. That and refrain is from voting. an important and, factor, I think. And I don't think. I think it's really important when we look at any DNC council or any party uh, entity like that being set up, we need to start thinking about ethics and conflict of interest provisions. I agree. I didn't see them in any of the other bylaws. Um, it's probably more important for this than you know, yes. say for the disability you get, council like right. So you get big props for this because, because, in the world. Yeah. I'm sorry. You yeah. get big props for this because there is a lot of lobbyists that are DNC members. This is not a big secret, I think. Oh. Absolutely. So there's a lobbyist for the gasifier industry who is very interested in our council. Well, I'm just going to put it that way. Right. So um, how much does that frustrate you? Because it seems to me that we have a really clear Democratic Party platform on these issues, and yet this stuff still goes on, and it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not cohesive with the platform. Um, so I think the platform matters a lot when you elect a Democratic president. Yeah. And, but... What does the platform do absent a president? I mean, I use it right. to inform how we created the Environmental Climate Crisis Council, referred to it, and it was able to legitimate it. But it is a presidential platform, really. I mean, I, yeah, so, that's fair. Yeah, but the other thing I think we all need to start doing is thinking about that platform. How we can start, generally, it's a very isolated process. Um, and in fairness, you know, if we have a Democratic president, the platform should reflect that person's values. But we can still help inform it and still yeah. help make sure it's law. Absolutely. Um, what do you think, Alan? Right. Well, so so well, are you going to... Yeah. Oh, well, no, the Sanders campaign, of course, had a big influence on the environmental planks in the platform because that was a very highly contested nomination process. Right. And there were, there were Sanford, Sanders people who were very vocal, particularly on the environment and on a number of other issues. But I just want to say that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very close to Susan Shannon. I did um, speak at the first Poverty Council meeting 
and I was an activist involved in the formation of that council and supporting Susie, who took such an initiative. And I just want to say I'm, I am really committed in PDA is to tracking your work on the Environment Council, being an ally of yours, and really with you in, 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 in solidarity with you, having to be a powerful force for a truly for environmental policies that are responsive to what the science tells us needs to be the case as of where we are uh, in history right now. We're going to now. figure out how to leverage this. So yes. can I ask you about a Washington Post uh, headline that came out this morning that I'm not sure that either of you have seen? No, I, I uh, haven't. I've been... It's pretty... Politicking since 6.30 a.m. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. It basically makes the case that Bernie Sanders' uh, environmental plan is worse than Donald Trump's wall as far as economics, etc. are concerned. I think this is a very... Yeah, no, that's the right reaction. When I read... I haven't gotten deeper into the article yet, but just the headline alone was so... What did I just read? You know what I'm saying? How can somebody think this way? Because this is really an existential problem. If we don't oh. solve the climate change problem, none of these... No, you answer first, because... No, I, I'm just... I need to read the article, yeah, because yeah. that shocks the heck out of me. Well, you know... Does it go... Okay, go. What I want to say is I do think my... My feeling is we do have to be realistic about what we're up against. Coming out of the Great Recession of 2008, the one sector that contributed more to, for the domestic economy lifting out of its crisis, two sectors. One, tax breaks for the wealthy so there could be stock buybacks to artificially inflate Wall yeah. Street and yeah. fracking and oil extraction. Boom. That's yeah. the reality of the American economy. Trump has loosened regulation. It continues to boom. So, yes, people are going to say that you take out the most uh, vibrant functioning sector of the economy, you're going to have some real problems. Yeah. And, and they're, of course, not, they're going to not believe that this can be done through a federal set of programs, regulations, and positions that demand the development of a green economy. Obviously, Sanders would argue that would replace the other industries collapse with something that was just as vibrant. But they don't believe it, and I think that's their logic. But we have to realize what we're up against. Was that, that the argument in the article? I can only anticipate it. I yeah, no, that's article. pretty much. I haven't gotten deep into it either because I just saw it when I sat down. So, like he, so like he said, yeah. right? Um, yeah. I'm just more concerned at this point of the way that things are being framed because I think framing is an important part of the narrative. And when you make these sort of um, bombastic claims in this direction without really considering how people, you know, a lot of people don't read past a headline. Or if they do, they read two paragraphs in. If it's something that's like, you know, 15, 1,600 words long, they tune out. I mean, that's sort of a reality. It's very troublesome to me to see that sort of a... a I don't think I don't think we can make any mistake about it that those forces are huge. Yeah. They huge amounts of money, huge amounts of power. Yeah. Um, they control the FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory right. Commission, right now, and those positions. They don't want a president yeah. who's going to replace those regulatory people. Regulatory capture. You're right. That's right. the other part and, of the problem. And they will fight that. Say anyone who's really truly going to take them on to the nail because so much is at stake. For them. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, in a way, I feel like this is almost the upending of the plutonomy, which is the the city bank word that they used in that memo, you know, what, 10, 12 years ago. And there has been such a con consolidation of, at the top of money and power, money, power, money, power, right? So these folks really do control aspects of regulatory capture, Congress is bought, like all of these things are intertwined. 
And I think they are actually genuinely worried. It's that whole idea, what was AOC's line where she said, they have money, we have people. There is a hell of a lot more of us than there are of them. And I think as Americans become more woke, now not to beat the dead horse on that word, but as they're more aware of how ingrained money in politics is and they get angry about it, they're they're worried that some actual change is going to be forced through in a way. That's a funny thing. This is really side talk. But if you yeah. actually look at the emergent emergence of fracking. Yeah. This was this technology of pumping these chemicals down, water filled with chemicals, the side drilling and all this stuff. I bet you that there this was probably developed on an American university campus probably. doing research yeah. with taxpayer dollars. <laughs> yeah. So you know democ Yeah no I know you gotta go. Oh yeah. I do. Yeah. Thank you so much for yeah. no 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 thank you. Chris Reeves, a DNC member from Kansas, made the case that historically Democrats have prevailed when they've had more debates not fewer. People on stage at once. Right. They just recognize that just because you don't have a podium, it's okay. We're going to have 12 and we're going to have closed forums and we want to pro about it. If right. We have, if we want to win, what's wrong with that? The whole world, world is watching! Right. And the whole, whole world, world is watching! Right. The, the argument that, well, watching. it's too much time the to prep. Look, the watching. voters deserve to know that. I agree. And I think I think to your point, when Democrats debate the issues because they are stronger on actually debating issues, right. we win elections for them to do this is really not a good thing. How much time are we gonna give to And so they, they think that this is the safest as a strategy. And I think it might be a strategy. I just don't agree with the strategy. Okay. I'm like, look, stop seeding the airwaves to Trump. I don't care if we hold an infinite number of debates. Yeah, Let's I don't debate either. every freaking week. I agree. And the argument of they need to go door to door, I've worked presidential campaigns. No, exactly. Find me any presidential campaign that goes door to door. That's, that's, that's somebody yeah. who's running for their state house or city government or whatever. You or know, Congress. Or Shot, Congress. Yeah. 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 But, but it's just, it's not how it works running for president. And giving them free airtime to talk about an existential The whole world is watching! 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 Members ultimately defeated the resolution by a vote of 222 to 137. In that group of 222, were 75 at-large delegate votes. The at-large delegates are appointed by Tom Perez and include many lobbyists. For example, there's a lobbyist from Citgo Petroleum and a lobbyist that represents News Corp. So, I'm R.L. Miller with Climate Hawks Vote, um, and I am getting reports that the vote has been against us, which is not at all surprising because Tom Perez was stacking the deck against us from the beginning. Um, the vote is in... I'm not quite sure what it is, but 
It looks like it's going to be under 200 for them and over 100 for us, but I'm not sure how the proxies are going to be counted. Um, without proxies, it was 141 to 118, which actually is closer than I thought. Um, this has been a failure of leadership from the top down. The DNC has operated as a black box, and it's been very frustrating. I am committed to reforming the DNC, not to burning it down. Um, and so I will be announced, I have announced my candidacy for um, DNC in California. Oh, excellent. Oh, yeah, and I think that people have to vote the so, all right, so you're the 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 I'm a Woolsey Fire survivor, and this is literal I had flames within 500 feet of my home. This is personal. No, it is personal. Thank you for letting us know. There were 137 no votes opposed to striking resolution number four, 222 to 137. Therefore, the motion to strike is adopted and we're back on the main motion of the consideration of the amended resolution report. DNC member Yasmin Taib took to Facebook to complain about the effect that the at-large delegates had on the vote. She said, Prior to proxy votes being counted, the vote was 141 to 118 in opposition to a climate forum. There were 100 proxy votes, many of whom simply instructed that their vote be in support of the chair. Did these DNC members even know what they were voting for or simply supporting the chair in everything he does? The final vote count was 222 to 137 in opposition to a multi-candidate discussion on the climate crisis. California Secretary of State Alex Padilla showed up twice on the DNC stage to discuss election integrity. Uh, bottom line, not anytime soon. Uh, but I think it's important to recognize when we get at it. Well, too far too often we have sort of election security conversation in isolation. We have election accessibility, right? access to the ballot conversation in isolation. Right? The Republican Party tries to leverage election security concerns to limit access, right? They know how to link it to their advantage. But election security and accessibility are not mutually exclusive. You can and must do both. Right? But are there other things to Secretary Benson's point that we can do to make it easier for eligible voters first to get registered and then second to be able to cast their ballot with more options of when, where, and how to do it. And so that's where the Democratic Association of Secretaries of State leads the way. Online registration, automatic voter registration, pre-registration for 16 and 17 year olds, same day registration, all can be done in a way that improves access and is secure. Casting your ballot, yes, more vote by mail or vote at home. We don't call it absentee voting anymore. You don't need an excuse. Shouldn't need an excuse. But how about more in-person early voting opportunities? Anywhere in your county, not just the polling place closest to where you live. Over the course of, in California, it's going to be 11 days, not just one. 
right? So we can do much more on the accessibility side while maintaining the security and integrity of our elections. Let's not get into the false, uh, you know, premise of the, the folks on the other side of the aisle who are trying to make it harder for people to be registered into it. I found Padilla's comments to be entirely egregious and hypocritical. In 2017, Padilla was sued by the ACLU for invalidating vote-by-mail ballots without informing the voters or giving the voters a chance to actually validate uh, their signatures. He simply just tossed the ballots out. Um, The claim that was made was that the signatures on file were mismatched and didn't match what was on the ballots. However, many of these signatures are 20 years old or or even older, perhaps. And what would have been the appropriate thing for for Padilla's office to do was to inform the voters that their signatures were mismatched and given them the opportunity to come in and actually show them that their signature was correct and to update the signature and to cast their vote. But he didn't do that. He simply threw the ballots out and he didn't let the voters know that he had thrown the ballots out. So this is why the ACLU sued him. And adding injury to insult, Alex Padilla didn't acquiesce to what the ACLU was saying. He fought the lawsuit. And when he lost the lawsuit, he filed an appeal. So the DNC putting him on stage to discuss these things seemed unbelievably tone deaf. In the Rules and Bylaws Committee, the Alabama State Party Chair, Nancy Worley, faced a challenge to her delegate selection plan. The accusation was the plan didn't adequately represent minority factions in the state. I'm Ralph Young. I'm the challenger from Alabama. Um, we have a large class. Mr. Rucko is also a representative for the group. Uh, I brought this challenge because there are still substantial irregularities in the voting behaviors of our state party and with the makeup of our uh, Democratic Party in that minorities are getting short shrift to quote the findings of the Credentials Committee. Um, Those continue to be issues in our state and I would like to pass the microphone over to my co-counsel to um, further discuss those. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Richard Rocco, and I'm here representing several of the challenging parties um, in the challenge that you have before you. Um, I'd like to thank Madam Chairwoman, uh, Mr. Chairman, and the committee members for giving us an opportunity to make a presentation um, on the challenge that was filed against the Alabama Democratic Party's delegate selection. The challenge raises several deficiencies. It has eight campuses. Deficiencies in both process and substance to the actual program. Because of the limited time that we have, I'd like to focus on three specific areas. The conduct of the vote for the plan, which occurred on July 15th. The underrepresentation of minorities and frankly the lack of a meaningful affirmative action plan in order to increase the diversity and inclusiveness of the delegation and the ADP's non-compliance with the DNC charter and DNC orders. The consequence of which, evidently today, early this morning, resulted in the decredentialing of the chair and vice chair of the Alabama Democratic Party. Now, the conduct of the vote, and this is laid out in the challenge in some of the materials that we've also submitted, but the, the vote, it was a vote that was taken by email on July 15th. On that, on the Friday before, July 12th, 
at approximately 9 p.m., Ms. Worley, the chair of the Alabama Democratic Party, sent an email to members of the State Democratic Executive Committee, this is a 250-member body, asking them to vote on the delegate selection plan by emailing or faxing the ballot to the ADP by noon July 15th, following Monday. The delegate selection plan was not attached to this email, but instead they were told that it could be accessible on the website, uh, on the ADP's website. When folks tried to access that website, they learned that it wasn't functional. So a second email had to go out on July 13th, on July 13th uh, informing the SDEC members that there was an updated link. Um, the evening, and late evening July, yeah, late evening July 15th, Ms. Worley certified to the DNC that Alabama's delegate selection plan had been approved by the SDEC. We later learned that there were 131 ballots cast out of the 250 eligible voters, and that the vote total was 62 yes votes, 42 no votes, and 27 votes that were not counted. They were disqualified primarily because the ballots were not signed. We also know that the July 15th vote was marred with so many irregularities that it actually altered the outcome. First, we know, and some of this material is in the material that's been handed out. There was a spreadsheet that was made available and was submitted to the part two of OPA and to the committee uh, that outlines the breakdown of all the votes. And if, you, if you look at that, uh, what I'm recounting here is reflected in that spreadsheet. But first, we know after examining the ballots that 18 of the 62 yes votes were cast well after the noon deadline. In one instance, a vote was cast in, on July 16th, early morning of July 16th. Now, ordinarily, extending the deadline under these circumstances would not be controversial, but the problem here was it was done in an ad hoc and selective way. The, the deadline, the noon deadline that was set for Monday was waived uh, sort of on an ad hoc basis. Ms. Worley did not send an email to SDEC members explaining that the, do, that the noon deadline was being extended. Instead, after the noon July 15th deadline had passed, the leadership, and this is again in the, in the materials that we've submitted, the leadership started calling and reaching out to certain SDEC members, asking them if they were going to vote. Selectively canvassing votes after the deadline. All the S and not surprisingly, all the, these 18 SDEC members that were reached out to, they all happened to be yes members. Because the deadline was waived on a secret, on a selective and secret basis, and Ms. Ms. Worley and Dr. Reed were soliciting these yes votes after the deadline, all 18 yes votes cast after the new deadline should not have been counted. It should not be considered. Second, we know that several individuals who voted no did not have their ballots counted. For example, and this is again in some of the materials that was provided, Napoleon Bracey, a current House representative, state House representative, emailed his ballot by the noon deadline and asked for confirmation of receipt. His ballot is missing. There's no uh, 
There's been simply no explanations as to how his ballot went missing. He was a no vote. Patricia Todd, another former state House representative, emailed her ballot before the new deadline, and it is also missing. Both are prominent members of the SDEC. Both voted no, and both have a history of questioning the ADP solution. If we exclude the 18 votes received after the deadline and count these two no votes, the delegate selection plan before this committee was not approved as required under Rule 21. In fact, it's reasonable to conclude that at, that at the July 15th news deadline, the majority of the members voted and who had submitted their ballots on time had actually rejected the delegate selection plan. So how do you avoid this outcome if you know at noon, July 15th, you're losing, your ballots go missing, you start calling people you know are going to vote yes, and you allow them to vote after the deadline. Lastly, and perhaps equally disturbing, is that we know that many of the SDEC members eligible to vote did not even receive an email ballot. Ms. Worley has conceded, and this is in the material that's been submitted to this committee, that the ADP does not have, an ADP, I mean, it's the Alabama Party, does not have email addresses for 27 of the 250 SDEC members. The number may actually be greater than 27, because we've asked for multiple times to show us, we've asked the party to give us access to the actual email distribution list that was used, and they've refused to do that. Now, how do you conduct a vote knowing that you don't, I mean, how do you conduct an e, a vote by email knowing that you don't have the email addresses for 10% of the SDEC? The only reason you would do that is that you really don't care about conducting a fair and impartial vote and believe that no one will ever know the difference because there's no, there's no transparency. So because of the missing 27 email addresses are outcome determinative, the RBC should find that the delegate selection plan submitted by Ms. Worley on July 15th was not approved by the SDEC as required under the rules. Now, you may have received word or noticed that, that there was a rerun election. Right? Not, not admitting that they did anything wrong, not conceding that anything was done wrong. There was a rerun election that was done, actually it was Tuesday of this week, right before this, this committee met. Now, the problem with the email, with this rerun vote, again, it showed that there, I believe, was 97 votes cast for and 70 votes cast against. I mean, that's an enormous number of votes to cast against a delegate selection plan. But there were 70 votes of SDEC members who did not believe in that SDEC plan. Now, the problem with accepting these results is, first of all, it's not before this committee in a timely way. The only reason they re-ran this vote is because they realized that they were caught in how they manipulated the prior vote on July 15th. But aside from that, the email distribution list still lacks 27 addresses. That's never been corrected. We don't, and they haven't come to us and said how, that, how that's been corrected. And that, again, is an outcome determinative number of votes. So until they actually fix the email address, make sure that they have an email address 
for every SDEC member. I don't think they should be you know, conducting votes of this nature by email. Another problem that shows sort of the haphazard way that this was done is that the plan made available for review on the second vote is the wrong plan. What they looked to was the plan as it was drafted and then sent out for 30-day comments. The plan that was linked to in the second vote is the draft plan. It is not the plan that was submitted to the RBC the first time around, which had all the comments and according to the party, had made some amendments that based on the comments, the plan had been somewhat amended. So the members that were voting this Tuesday or Monday and Tuesday this weekend were voting on a draft plan that's never been submitted. Again, we have what we know is that the ABP also sent out a memo this week, this weekend, only to select members, reminding them that they needed to vote in this upcoming, you know, this the vote that was that closed on Tuesday at five o'clock. It was not sent. That reminder was not sent to all SDEC members. It was only sent to a group of SDEC members. Now, the second issue has to deal with underrepresentation of diversity groups. The delegate selection plan, in particular, underrepresents Hispanics and also makes no meaningful commitment to recruiting other diversity constituencies. With respect to the Latino representation on the Alabama delegation, the plan only commits to recruiting and appointing one Hispanic member. This is based on the, on the assumption that Latinos make up less than 1% of the Democratic electorate in Alabama, an assumption which is just flatly wrong if you use the numbers that they use. If we use their formula, and I think there's some dispute about what the appropriate formula should be, but if we use the ADP's formula, you would end up having a commitment to at least three Latino delegates on, um, in this particular delegate selection. But even, um, and now, you know, this may seem like the, the, the change from one to three may seem insignificant, but I can tell you that for many Latinos in Alabama, it's important. Rather than being, just being the sole Latino on the committee, having someone else that has your experiences uh, on that committee with you is an important aspect or important fact. Now, finally, the ADP's affirmative action plan fails to make meaningful steps towards broadening the party and making it more inclusive. The challenge at count four states that the ADP's affirmative action plan, a required and vital element, is inadequate. Rather than addressing the point about the inadequacies of the affirmative action plan, the ADP's answer focuses solely on uh, attacking the calculation that we used in order to increase representation of, minor of Hispanics and other diversity groups on the, on the, the Alabama's delegation. The ADP does not respond to the claim that the affirmative action plan has no goals or timetables for implementing specific affirmative action programs to increase diversity and make the party more inclusive. Finally, there's the ADP's non-compliance with the DNC Charter and DNC Board. The ADP has not corrected the problems identified with respect to the elections of Mr. Worley and Reverend Kelly 
in August of 2018. The bylaws as they exist today are still not compliant with the DNC charter and the ruling of the RBC. In fact, earlier this morning, there was a, the, the credentials committee met and there was an exhaustive explanation of all the efforts that this committee has made to try to get Alabama to accept bylaw changes that would make Alabama's bylaws compliant, that would help Alabama have a Democrat, have an SDC that's more representative of the Democratic electorate. And to no avail, the, the party simply has not made any effort to do that. In fact, what we've experienced and what was laid out was sort of a history of stalling and a history of avoiding the issue. Now, instead of acknowledging and committing to a more transparent and diverse party, some of the leadership have attacked the DNC with accusations of racism and wanting to disenfranchise black workers. They've called Senator Jones a Dixiecrat and worse. They know full well what it is when they make those accusations. As a result, In fact, the kinds of allegations that have been thrown that have been made out there are allegations that are currently being seized by our opponents, the Republicans. Um, and they're using that to undermine Senator Jones' long and well-known record of fighting for racial equality and social justice. Because of the ADP is not compliant with the DNC charter and rules, and there is a lack of will as part of the leadership to address this failure, the selection of pledged at large, and alternate delegates should be entrusted, should not be entrusted to the ADP, but instead a quorum of district level delegates should be selected, should be the ones selecting these delegates. We also believe that by rejecting this plan, it will force the ADP to have a meeting of the SDEC, which they have not called, so that we can take up these issues, these very important and vital questions. Um, thank you for the time to make this, um, allow me to make this presentation. If there are any questions, I'd be glad to answer. The credentials committee voted to strip Worley of credentials earlier on in the day, and this was due to the fact that there was also irregularities in their election. But the issue of the minority inclusion was left open for discussion, and the delegate selection plan remained in place and unresolved.